0: Hebrews. If you want a title, uh, Beholding and Becoming, I'm going to invite up Larry and Jorgen. They're gonna read chapter one, verse one through four. Pray for us
1: and then we'll see what God has for us. Good morning, I'm Larry and this is my son. Chug N J O R G E N, And uh, we're going to uh, bring you to the throne of grace with the word of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in those last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heirs of all things through whom also he creates the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Father, uh, I thank you that you have spoken to us in these last days by your son, and not by punishment, but by your son. And I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning. and We would see Jesus, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. There we go. Sorry, old guy. You're good. Ooh. I feel like that could just be the sermon. (laughs) And I feel like for some of you, you go, that probably should be the sermon. Just wrap it up and pray. And I wouldn't blame you for feeling that way. I feel that way a little bit this morning. But instead, there's words. I have words. So welcome to Hebrews. Uh, it is a book with some mystery to it. The mystery mainly is this, that the author of this book is unknown. Anybody want to shout out who they think or just their, their preference of who it, who it might be? Moses? Moses? <laughs> That's good. All right, Moses, we got a Paul. Anybody else? Mike, you want to throw? Barnabas? All right. God? Oh, you threw the church card. (laughs) All scripture is breathed out by God, so the church answer would apply here. Jesus! All right? I want to throw in just as a wild card because I know... and this is a little bit of a minor beef that I have with Mike, is I heard in the Romans class, he's, you know, there's the argument about whether or not Matthias in Acts chapter 1 should have been voted in as the next apostle, and there's speculation that the apostles were a little bit hasty because that place should have been reserved for Paul, and I'm going, well, maybe Matthias wrote this, and that's part of his role in apostleship. So, uh, <laughs> Silas, Apollos, Luke, all speculation, and we don't know. Ultimately, yes, God, because all scriptures breathe out. Well, well done. Uh, Dr. Pevlina uh, back there, putting that PhD to work. It was, in this book, uh, was accepted into the canon really for, for two reasons. One, um, it's apostolic tone. We don't know who it wrote it, but it's clear that it has an apostolic tone. It is very much in line with the other books of the Bible that we have that come from the Apostles or from first-hand accounts of the Apostles. And the second reason that this book was accepted into the canon, actually first by the Eastern Church before the Western Church, is that it has a very heavily Christocentric message. This book centers on Jesus, who he is, what he accomplished, and then what that means for his people then and now. And the audience really helps us understand the message. They were first century followers of Jesus that come from a Jewish background. And like many of the early church during that time, they were following this Savior and enduring suffering. These people were tempted and tried and wondering what it might be all about in the midst of their difficulty. It was John Bunyan who said, dark clouds bring waters when the bright ones bring none. Michael Kruger in his commentary on Hebrews says, it is the audience that really helps us to understand the book. The audience appears to be primarily Jewish Christians who grew up in Judaism, but have believed in Jesus. They've embraced him as the Messiah. If they have hit a snag, For whatever reason, perhaps the pressure of persecution and opposition, they are thinking about going back to Judaism. They're considering leaving this newfound faith and going back to the old ways, animal sacrifices, worship at the temple, the old paths, if you will, that the Jews have trusted in for generations. In other words, these people are starting to doubt whether this Jesus thing is all it first promised to be. Have you been in that place before? wondering whether the Jesus thing is all that it first promised to be. So the goal for them and us really is to behold Christ and become like him in life. All throughout this book, the author goes to great lengths and to show how good, how superior, the word over and over is better, Jesus is. If you were to sum up Hebrews in three words, it'd be Jesus is better. Behold Jesus and pressing into His plan for His people in life. The thesis of the book is found in what Larry and Jorgen read for us in chapter one, verse one through four, saying, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets." I know that Anthony likes to bring us the message translation from time to time. He likes it. I like it as well, but it's time for some old King James. God. I love this, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto our fathers by the prophets. The author is saying that the story of God is not a once upon a time in a land far, far away type story. We know those stories. We love those stories, but they're just fairy tales. They're tales that bring about some element of truth or morality that we can cling to. That's not what the story of God is, though it spans centuries and millennia. He's saying there has been a people, a history, a past that is traceable through his word. And he gives the imagery, uh, at least in our time, of that of a puzzle. It is, it's kind of piecemeal, that word in diverse manners. It's, it's piecemeal. God has spoken in different times and in different ways through the prophets. There's many pieces through people in many different places that God has worked and spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, his message has come to us through his son. Now, just a side note for the term last days that, that we can put in our little pocket and and help us as we go through life, there's there's still a lot of hype and hoopla around the last days. It gets clicks. It gets church attendance when you start talking about prophecy and all sorts of stuff like that. But would you notice that the first century said last days? First century, people were going, hey, we're in the last days. So, So the last days is the time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. It has been now for us almost 2,000 years of history. So if somebody wants to get you all hyped up about these last days, you go, yeah, we've been in them for a long time. And yes, we want Jesus to return. But we aren't going to get all hyped up on today's news and try to connect the dots to the book of Revelation. Off of my soapbox, okay. Thanks. I'll get on it again before we're done, I promise. So in these last days, the message has come to us back on the soapbox, not through the headlines, not through the current election, not through any of that, but through what? His son. Second side note, if you want to hear God's voice, if you long to know what God might speak to you, you need to look no further than Jesus. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished. You want to have God's voice in your life. You, know, you want to know what God might be speaking. Look to Jesus. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. This isn't just any kind of guy. Jesus is my homeboy type of thing. This is the creator of the universe. The same theme is found in Colossians chapter 1. Anthony taught us on this. We'll go back circle just to see again. Paul would say this about Jesus that is piggybacking on Hebrews, that Jesus, Colossians 1 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This is Jesus. In my own life, too often, I shrink Jesus down. I lose sight of just how big and beautiful and glorious and majestic and powerful this Jesus is. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us all behold not only is Jesus speaking not only is he the heir of all things and creator of all things in verse 3 he Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The Bible Project guys say that these metaphors are used as the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. As the sun radiates light off of it and you can't really fully see the sun, it's a bad idea to try. There's science there for you. as as a signet ring would give an imprint and identification of the sender, this is Jesus. He is God. He shows us the heart of God. This verse here from Hebrews and also in Colossians is where C.S. Lewis got the famous trilemma that Jesus is either a liar, he's lunatic, or Lord. And... One of the lines is he's on the level, if if he's a lunatic, he's on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, which is just brilliant writing. But since you've already heard the C.S. Lewis quote, we'll we'll go old school J. Oswald Sanders, the incomparable Christ. He says this, if Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity, and we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best of men are blasphemers. More serious still, if he is not God, then he is a blasphemer on the fullest sense of the word. If he is not God, he is not even good. But what scripture and the story tell us is that not only is Jesus God, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that in his person and work, we see that this God and this Jesus is merciful, is faithful in his pursuing, that this God takes on flesh. Not only does he take on flesh, but he makes a purification, the purification for sins. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. He's superior, not only the prophets, but then the writer goes on, he's superior to the angels. Again, this is something that ought to cause us pause in life. That every single one of us has to deal with the question of, who is Jesus and then what does that mean? Who is Jesus? If he is God, then what does that mean? N.T. Wright says this, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world Or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. So where do you find yourself this morning? Who is Jesus? And then what does that mean? I don't want to live in that murky middle ground. There's a better way than the shallow in-between. If Jesus is the way, then our calling is to follow him. And what do we find when we follow him? We find that he is better. Again, at every turn throughout this book, Jesus is better. He's superior. And it's a tough term to, to grasp in the English. I was wrestling with this kind of all week because we just go, well, it's better. And we're used to and desire things that are just better. Like a little bit of a grade up oh, this phone, it's better, it's an upgrade. But we aren't talking like iPhone 13 to 14 kind of better. We're talking, if we're using technological terms, it's like if you were to hold the iPhone 14 Pro today with all of its capabilities and abilities, and you compare that to the tin can string phone that you used in your fort as a kid, that's the level of difference. And even more still. We're talking about like, Back in the old days of uh, old-timey medical stuff. I remember hearing a podcast in the 14th, 15th, 16th century. They have no clue how the human body works. And and they would, if somebody had trouble with anxiety or or had a a more like kind of charged up disposition, they go, we know how to cure this. We'll take a, a calm animal, a sheep. And we'll connect this human to the sheep and let the sheep's blood flow into the human, and that'll calm them down, surely. I mean, it makes sense on paper, calm animal, crazy person, just transfer that, and both of them would die. Today, we know a little bit more than that, right? Some of you that have endured or enduring procedures, you're like, I know it's not easy, and the medical system's broken and a hot mess, but is a lot better than that. Like, oh, you're feeling sick? Let's just like cut you open and drain out some blood. That'll help. No, Jesus is so much better. Behold Him. And throughout this book, He says Jesus is is greater, superior, better than the prophets, the angels. Then Moses, then Joshua, then Aaron, the Old Covenant, the temple, the priestly system, the sacrifices. And if you're like me, which I hope you're not, in all ways, in many ways, it can be easy to read Hebrews, and especially the Old Testament, and just go, Ah, that's weird. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, that's strange and complicated, and I don't fully get it. Uh, thank you, Jesus. And, and that is a simple, cursory reading of the text. But the author isn't just going, yeah, those things were lame and, 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 you know, don't necessarily apply anymore, so just thank God for that. But what the author is going on is to show the intentionality. He, he's intentionally showing how the story is, is weaved together and how Jesus is the center of it. And one of the commentaries I was reading this week, I came across a quote from a Theologian in the 18th century, unfortunate first name, Adolf Safir, he was before the bad Adolf. 1831, he was a Hungarian Jew who converted to Christianity and was a Presbyterian missionary. 1831 to 1891, he says this, "...the great object of the epistle," that is Hebrews, "...is to describe the contrast between the old and new covenants. By this contrast is based upon their unity." It is impossible for us to rightly understand the contrast unless we first know the resemblance. The new covenant is contrasted with the old covenant, not in a way which the light of the knowledge of God is contrasted with the darkness and ignorance of heathenism, for the old covenant is also of God and therefore possessed of divine glory. Then this, this is so good. Beautiful is the night in which the moon and stars of prophecy and types are shining. But when the sun arises, then we forget the hours of watchfulness and expectancy. And in the clear and joyous light of day, there is revealed to us the reality and substance of the eternal and heavenly sanctuary. That's what's going on in Hebrews. And this author goes to great lengths again and again to anchor these believers in an unshakable hope in the midst of their turmoil. Because in their troubles and in our troubles, it reveals what we are trusting in, what we are hoping for. And there's an opportunity for us and these believers then to recenter and cling to the truth. And often that truth comes in a very forward, which can be difficult way to hear it. And the author and God is not callous or cold, but is showing how understanding and empathetic Jesus is, as well as honest and clear with the consequences of rejecting him. And so again, in this book, the author is showing how Jesus is the center of this story, how Jesus completes this story, how he holds it all together. And gives severe, some of the strongest warnings in all of the New Testament about what it means to desert him. We're gonna look at two of them. The first one comes in chapter two, verse one. After saying how great and superior Jesus is to the prophets and the angels, chapter two, verse one, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Warning number one, pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to who Jesus is, to what he said, and what that means for life. All of us are at great risk for what has been deemed spiritual amnesia, that we just have latent within our souls a forgetfulness of who God is and what he's accomplished in Jesus. And, and the task and the warning is don't drift. How don't you drift? By paying attention attention, much closer attention to what you have heard. Then, in chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, again, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Solution? But exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. The author of Hebrews makes the comparison to first century followers, uh, comparing them in their journey to those that were in the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? Anybody remember from, I don't know, January, February this year? There was a wandering, there was a golden calf, there was this perpetual cycle of belief in repentance and following marked by apathy and indifference that led to idolatry and drifting and judgment. It's like what Anthony said again, rinse and repeat, this cycle that happens again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that tendency is latent within every single one of us so the solution is not just a you and Jesus kind of thing, but a we and Jesus kind of thing as we look to follow him, not merely as individuals, but as a family together. So the author says, enter into that rest that is Jesus. Where they neglected the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament, we enter the rest that is Jesus as new covenant followers of Jesus. Again, he continues, chapter 4, verse 11. but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's severe. It's serious. And it's beautiful all at the same time. Because these warnings don't come without direction or without hope. It's not as though for, I know some of you that grew up with with parents that were severe, abusive, where you just didn't know where you stood when the next foot would drop what it would be like some of you have experienced that in work with an unsteady uncertain boss where you just don't know where you stand anthony and beth that's where they would say amen ha ah, i got i got ahead of it but that's not who god is or what he's like it's clear and it's, and it's good. Because what we find in Jesus with our own state of who we are and how we experience life is that Jesus, at every turn, because he took on flesh, he's understanding. He's merciful. He's patient. He's gracious with us in that. So for many of us, we go, well, what's going to happen if I actually turn to God? If I'm honest with God, honest with others about who I am, about what I struggle with, about what my fears are, and what you find again and again and again with the real Jesus in the scriptures is he's understanding, he's merciful, and he's gracious. And he's inviting us to take all of that to him with who we are and where we actually are. If you don't believe me, That sounds too good to be true. Let's keep reading. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin." But what do we do with that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I pray that that set of scripture forms your hearts and your minds and removes whatever hesitations you have in pursuing Jesus. And there's any number that we bring to the table, Right? Maybe your heart tends to go towards moralism, guilt, and shame. Maybe you resist and lean towards rebellion and just wanting to do your own thing. I don't know the roadblocks that you have in your own heart towards following Jesus, but I pray that this scripture would clear the way and would spur you on and encourage you to follow after Jesus because there are consequences to not following after Jesus. But then you would you would see just how good, just how gracious, just how loving he is. Beyond these couple warnings that we've looked at, the writer would then go on to say, don't fall away. Do not keep on sinning. Do not miss the grace of God that is to you. Do not refuse to listen. This book is sobering. There's... A week or two ago, I was having a hard time sleeping. It's like 11 o'clock and it's, you know, you're doing the hot dog roll. I was doing the hot dog roll. You're like, stomach? Ah, that's not. Back? Nope. Stomach? Nope. Just not sleeping. I was like, oh, I'm teaching on Hebrews soon. (laughs) So I start bringing it out and I just start reading through Hebrews and I made it all the way to about chapter 10 and got to one, uh, another one of the warnings. I was like, holy smokes, this is sobering to take an account of what I'm doing of how I'm living because there's a consequence to it all. These warnings, again, to quote somebody else, is not meant to cause fear, but sobriety. They aren't meant to to cause like this unhealthy uncertainty in our hearts, but to cause honesty and sobriety. Because the truth is when we behold him, we see he's better. And then the call is to follow him more fully in life, becoming increasingly aware of who God is and then what God has intended us to be in life. And this is a double-edged sword because there's absolute grace and mercy, but then there's this things need to be cut out and removed, right? We all know this. Habits, tendencies, roadblocks. Unforgiveness. If you want a sermon, listen to Anthony's last week. Super good. Unforgiveness. What is it that is keeping you from beholding God for who He is and what He's done? I want to read this extended passage again. N.T. Wright, his his academic stuff. He's N.T. Wright. His popular level stuff. Tom Wright. So this is from Tom Wright. If you have a choice between letting the doctor examine you right away, uncomfortable though it may be and waiting until he or she can do a post-mortem on you after it's too late, it's wise to go for the first. If you open yourself day by day and week by week to the message of Scripture, its grand sweep and its small details, and allow the faithful preaching of Jesus and his achievement to enter your consciousness and soak down into your imagination and heart, then the admittedly uncomfortable work of God's Word will, begin hap- will be happening on a regular basis, showing you, as we say, where you really are, what's going on deep inside. You may need help from someone else in this process, just as the healing work of the early church didn't mean that doctors became unnecessary, so the probing, searching, penetrating analysis of God's Word doesn't mean that there isn't still a job for the psychotherapists and similar professionals. But nor do they make the task of the word unnecessary, to spend time prayerfully and thoughtfully with Scripture and with Jesus. The written and living word of God is to know the gentle but powerful touch, like a very sharp and fine blade, producing surprising and perhaps alarming results. And this is the gift of what Scripture does and the story of God does in our life. It reveals the other stories we cling to and have been indoctrinated by. It shows the idols that we hold to and the longings that don't line up. And it's true that these last days can feel like a wilderness. They have their wanderings, their wants, their desires that we have for for belonging, really for home. Life can be brutal. Can it not be? But in that, the solution is, the hope, the direction, the next step is fixing our eyes on Jesus. It is Jesus, I heard Tim Keller say earlier this week listening to a sermon, it is fixing our eyes on Jesus that gets us home. And so from reading this book and reflecting on this for the last couple of weeks, here's what I'm learning about the Christian life. That the next step in growth isn't simply from addition and subtraction. It isn't just do these things and don't do these things. Though, again, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, one of the sermons was about saying the yes, not just the no's, but the yeses of the gospel. So, so I realize that. But it's not primarily about do this, don't do that but there's more to it. It's around proximity and attention. So proximity meaning it is becoming more aware that God is closer to us, to quote Augustine, than we are to our very selves. And it's not God who drifts and comes and goes. It is we who drift and come and go. And so much of the Christian life is simply being aware of his proximity and leaning into that. Well, how do you do that? That's where the addition and subtraction. You become aware of God's proximity through word, through prayer, through community, through gatherings, through communion, through these disciplines and practices that we have in this life that, again, bring us back to this place of center, becoming aware that God is nearer to us than we are to our very selves. And the practice of that is simply paying attention. It's been said, I don't know, who said it, but that the world has changed. And in, in what is one of the most valuable uh, uh, commodities today is our attention. And so what are all the companies and advertisers doing? They're, they're trying to uh, capitalize on our attention. How long we can continue scrolling. And, again, uh, maybe a small soapbox, like the average user of TikTok, the most popular app right now, I think it's like an hour 59 minutes a day on the app is the average. And for those of you that are on TikTok, we can have a conversation, uh, uh, just stop. I don't know. And I can, I can, say, I can say that from feeling real holy because I'm like, I can't, I just, I can't get on that one. I know myself. And you're like, well, how's your YouTube usage? And I'm like, it's probably about an hour 59 minutes a day. So <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. We're going, what are we paying attention to? And so first we need to realize God is nearer to us than we are to our very selves. And then what are we paying attention to? And most of our attention is captivated by other things. And if you follow your attention, you are destined to run into your idols. Good gifts from God that we have made ultimate things. Good gifts from God that we have put in... uh, in the the capital most important spot of our hearts and lives. And when we come into God's presence through his word, through prayer, through gatherings, through being with his people, there's a reckoning that ought to happen every time. That these times are meant to slow us down, to evaluate, and from there, We recognize, yet again, who our faithful, loving Savior is in those places. Who doesn't bring us guilt and shame, but who meets us with grace. If you want a fuller dive on that, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland is one of the better books written in the last five years that captures the heart of Christ. The subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I'll just give you a tweet he sent out last night. He says this weak faith is still real faith, Because weak faith is still faith in a strong Savior. It's his strength, not our weakness, that matters. And hopefully, in hearing this and in seeing a little bit of a glimpse of that through the book of Hebrews, you see just how good and how faithful and how constant he is. And from that then, we are able to rightly evaluate where we're at What kind of things are getting in the way? And press into him through that. In chapter 11, you have the Hall of Faith and all these people. And again and again, through faith, through faith, through faith. And what you recognize in this list, if you go through it, every single one of those people were just broken, messed up, sinful people. But it's the Dane Orland quote. They had faith in a strong and faithful Savior. And so I'd encourage you towards looking consistently, building habits and patterns in your life that would reorient you and remind you of the proximity of God, that you would pay attention to Him and to your life, and with His people, follow Him where He's placed you. John Tyson is a pastor in New York he sends out a weekly email I find helpful. And this week he was talking about uh, the things that rob us and it was playing into uh, the sacrifice and one of the sacrifices in the Old Testament where the vultures came and he built on that. Here's the quote. He says, The vultures of consumerism will come to steal your generosity. The vultures of lust will come to steal your holiness. The vultures of power will come to steal your humility. The vultures of selfishness will come to steal your sacrifice, the vultures of distraction will come to steal your focus. Drive them away with faith. Drive them away with the word. Drive them away with prayer. Drive them away with spiritual discipline, disciplines. Drive them away for the reward that God has promised. Friends, if you don't know this, and I know you know this, life and suffering can make this thing called a walk with God feel like a slog. Like we read the first quote from Michael Kruger, we can ask ourselves, is following Jesus really worth it? And I'm grateful to know that I don't think God shrinks back or looks at us with a cross eye when we ask those questions because he knows us. And he took on flesh. He he prayed jesus prayed god if there's any other way let this cup pass from me which is something to reflect on something to chew on that jesus himself knowing what he came to do said in that moment if there's any other way let this cup pass nevertheless not my will but yours be done I don't think God looks at our suffering, at our pain, at our questions, at our hurt, at our wounds, and shies away from them at all. No, it seems again and again, from the life of Jesus, you look back at the Psalms, he is so open to our humanity. He is so open to our questions. He is so open to our pain. He is so open to our wounds. He says, bring them to me. And I think what has helped me through those doubts and fears and questions and wonderings, and is this really worth it, is coming back to who Jesus is. That's what I can't personally get past. I can't get past Jesus. For my own heart that wanders and that wonders in this life, with its pain, with its sorrow, with its temptation, is... For my north star, I go, the resurrection. Did Jesus really rise? And I go, oh yeah, the tomb is empty. I mean, and you can look at it from scripture, you can look at it from the evidence, just he really came. There really was a person who walked this earth named Jesus, who really was crucified, who really was buried. And through faith, I'm believing, really rose again. And history points to those evidences as well. And then not only that, but he really has done something in my own heart. And he really continues to do something when I press into him and his word. He really does continue to show up in my life through my friends, through my family, through so many evidences of grace in my life that I'm not often paying attention to or thankful for. He really does keep showing up. Though I've been like this. It's faithful, true, consistent, constant, loving, merciful, gracious, compassionate, again and again and again. I go, well, to who else shall we go? He alone has the words of eternal life. Let's close with Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded of the throne of God. That's it. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your word is living and is active and is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we admit today that we need more of that in our lives. As the hymn says, we are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love. And so would you... Increasingly today, help us to cling to you. Help us to implement in our lives those things that remind us of who you are and what you've accomplished. We thank you for the multitude of gifts and disciplines you've gifted to us, that we have this book that we call the Bible that testifies again and again, to the mercy and grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And would we this day take its warnings seriously? May they shake us to the core of our being with those things that we are toying with, that we know lead us astray from you. Would you help us to crucify those things, crucify our flesh, any passion or desire that leads us away from you. Those temptations and longings that we think in the short term lead us home, but they are not of you and actually take us off the path. God, would you wrap us into your heart, your will, your way. We need you. And it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.